0: let go or be dragged my name is andrea and this is adult child Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. And today, we are diving deep into detaching with love. And I can't think of better guests to dive into this topic than my guest today, the co-authors of the memoir, The Lost Years, Surviving a Mother and Daughter's Worst Nightmare, Christina Wanzelak and her lovely mother, Constance Curry. Now, if you haven't read this book, you need to, okay? But to provide a little context for anyone who has not read it yet, this is not your average addiction memoir. This book is a look into the perspective and suffering of both the teenage addict, Christina, and the codependent, Connie, her mother. And this book is so damn good because not only is it a raw and vulnerable illustration of the detrimental impact that addiction has on the entire family, it is a beautiful illustration of detaching with love and the ripple effect that one family member seeking recovery can have on the entire family unit. Now, the pivotal turning point in this book Is when Connie realizes that the problem is not her daughter, but the dysfunctional family system at large, and that she needed to seek her own recovery, not because this would somehow get Christina sober, but because she was sick too. And it would be through the program of Al-Anon that she would learn how to detach with love and learn how to set healthy boundaries, which would ultimately play a major role in Christina finally hitting bottom and finding recovery at 21. Now, just like the purpose of AA is not to learn how to drink successfully, the purpose of Al-Anon and other family support programs is not to fix our loved ones. It is about fixing ourselves. As we've talked so much about throughout the podcast, addiction, alcoholism, dysfunction is a family disease, meaning everyone in the family is sick. Yes, every damn one of us. Even if we aren't the identified patient, the addict, the alcoholic, the narcissist, the abuser— we still play a role in keeping the dysfunction alive and thriving, and we will continue to until we seek recovery and healing for ourselves. Now, one of the most important concepts we must learn in adult child recovery is how to detach with love from our family members who are still sick and suffering. Now, what the hell does detaching with love mean? Detaching with love means we stop obsessively worrying about others, telling them what to do, trying to rescue them. It means we no longer allow the actions or inactions of another to dictate our peace of mind. It means we sit in the driver's seat of our own serenity and happiness. Now, I had a pivotal moment around six years sober, which was actually before I officially started my adult child recovery. But I remember being on the phone with a family member and essentially yelling at them to get sober. And when I hung up that phone, I felt like absolute shit. And it was in that moment that I realized that my attempts to change a family member who didn't want to change was not only having no positive impact on the situation, but it was actually harming me. And it was in that moment that I finally fully accepted that I could not save this family member, and that the absolute best way I could positively impact this situation was to take care of myself and become the best and highest version of myself. Now, to some, the concept of detachment seems selfish or unloving, but in fact, it is the most loving thing we can do. We are no longer aiding and abetting in the dysfunction, and we allow the opportunity for others to hit their bottoms. Emphasis on opportunity for others to hit their bottoms. There is no guarantee that detaching with love will result in our loved ones seeking recovery for themselves, but the odds are sure as hell better for this happening when we detach rather than staying sick ourselves. Now, detaching with love is an action, an action that helps us stay in our own lane to focus on what we can control and what is our own responsibility and not to interfere in other people's lives and choices. So here are some examples of detaching with love, not giving unsolicited advice, setting boundaries, allowing others to experience the natural consequences of their actions, Recognizing that your feelings and needs are valid. Expressing your own opinions and feelings. Taking a time out from an unproductive or hurtful argument. Not accepting responsibility for fixing or solving other people's problems. Not making excuses for other people's problems. Staying focused on what you can control rather than worrying about what others are doing not doing things for others that they should be doing for themselves. Now, there is an amazing book by Deepak Chopra. It is The Seven Spiritual Laws of Success. And one of those laws is the law of detachment. So in closing, I want to leave you with an affirmation that comes from that, that all adult children could benefit from saying a million times a day. I will allow myself and those around me the freedom to be as they are. I will not rigidly impose my idea of how things should be. I will not force solutions on problems, thereby creating new problems. One more time, okay? I will allow myself and those around me the freedom to be as they are. I will not rigidly impose my idea of how things should be. I will not force solutions on problems, thereby creating new problems. Again, say this shit many, many times a day. And now for my interview with Christina and Connie. I,
1: I want to scream so loud for you. i I'm so proud of you. And I. let me tell you what I'm about to do now. I know I act a fool, but I promise you I'm going back to school, I appreciate what you allow for me, and I just want you to do proud I want to tell the whole world about a friend of mine, this little light of mine, I'm finna let it shine. I'm finna take y'all back to them better times. I'm finna talk about my mama, if y'all don't
0: mind. Well, it's my pleasure to introduce Connie and Christina, the co-authors of The Lost Years, which, God, what has it been now? 13 years since you've written it? it's been a while yeah it's more like 16 i think is wow. it 15? when did it come out
2: 2008
1: we, we need to write an update on the book you could
0: do like a 15 year checkup update
1: you know i the book has got has done really well you know and we've had such great support and People actually ask a lot, right? And to your point on the topic of your podcast, frankly, right? So the last year's ends, you know, when I'm sober and happy and well and same with my mom, right? But then there's, you know, all these years subsequently and people check in about it and and what we're doing now and what has happened after. And I, I don't know, there's just so much to be said for, um, after sobriety, right after the initial recovery. Um, and so I think a book, you know, I've always thought, you know, for mom and I to, to write, you know, what's it called A prologue or an after or, you know, yeah, just, you know, just a, a bit about what it's been like. I've been sober now 27 years and my mom's been, you know, in her own recovery for, I don't know, 30 Seven years? I mean, who knows, right? Like, no, I hope not. <laughs> Makes me like <more laughs> old. <laughs> but, but yeah. If I'm 27 years sober, you found your recovery at least five at years. At yeah, uh, 30
2: years or, you know, thir- yeah, for sure.
1: Anyway, so that's my point, right? To, you you know, coinciding with your podcast about what happens after. And I think, you know what, to be frank with you though, I was told many times that there is no interest in long-term sobriety that's not where the drama is it's not where the interest is i had to take out four chapters of the last years uh four chapters some of my favorite chapters and they were the chapters of sobriety right the first time i got an apartment <laughs> and my driver so i mean just all these monumental things in my life but i was told you know multiple times no one cares it's not dramatic reading when you're better And then even with Addicted and doing the television shows, I wanted to do a show about what happens after, right? After intervention, after treatment and watching people get better and that beautiful journey, that bittersweet, cathartic journey of recovery. And I was told it doesn't make good television.
0: Well, that's what my podcast is really about, right? Like that's the reason that I decided to create this was because at Nine Years Sober, I found myself in even more pain than when I felt when I had gotten sober. And I think that so much has changed in the years since you guys have written that book. I just think about all of the medical advancements that have been made. Um, There's so much more of an understanding of the impact to the brain of childhood trauma. And so I think it is a conversation that really, really, really needs to be um, discussed a lot more And I think also, too, think about there's a lot of people, I think, that might get physical sobriety at first, but they are unable to maintain sobriety because they're not facing those deeper, darker root issues. So I think it is, I don't know, I think that there probably would be more of an audience. I mean, I sure as hell would love to to read a a prologue or hear all that stuff. I think that your book is so beautiful because it is not the story of... Uh, Addiction or alcoholism, but it is the story of the family disease of alcoholism or addiction or the family disease of dysfunction. And I was hoping, Connie, that you could kind of talk about your kind of revelation of when you started to realize that the problem was not that you had a daughter who was an addict, but that this was part of the larger family system of dysfunction. And that in fact, yes, she was the identified patient, but in reality she was sounding the alarm bell for a much larger issue at hand. And I think that was a really pivotal point in the book when you start to realize that it's not just her that's the problem and it's the family at large. So I was hoping you could talk about that.
2: Sure. Well, I I remember the first time uh, that I actually acknowledged out loud that my husband was an alcoholic and I called my therapist and I cried and cried on the phone because to me, I had watched my father-in-law drinking Uh, early in the morning when when we would go to visit them. uh, I realized, oh, I think he's putting something in his orange juice, you know. So I saw that. And then all of a sudden I'm watching my husband and I just realized, my God. And it was terrifying to me. The reason it was terrifying. First of all, this is 16 or 20 years ago when we didn't have all the knowledge about um, the disease system. And, you know, it was still more about a, a personality defect or a person you know, there's something wrong with a person rather than understanding there's a disease here that impacts that person. And yes, they have to take responsibility for their actions, but maybe they didn't, they certainly didn't mean to be an alcoholic, you know, so I, I saw the family dynamics uh, go from one generation to the other. And so I was terrified because I, I thought this is not something I can fix. I mean, if he had cancer, I could go to the doctor with him and we could get a pill or a, you know, chemotherapy or something to fix this. But what terrified me the most was I couldn't fix it. There was no fix for it Uh except his fix. You know, he was going to have to fix what was wrong with him, but I had to fix what was going on with me and with my children. And so. That was, a, that was a terrifying day, but I think it was, I would say, my bottom. And I started going to a 12-step program. Can we say what? Yeah, of course. Okay, so I started going to Al-Anon. And um, I went, oh, like three and four times a week eventually. I found different meetings. And then I found some parent meetings. And somehow I was sitting in one of these parent meetings. It was a Wednesday night, a small group in our little in a little cottage in Larkspur. and I was sitting in the group and oh my God, this is not about Christina. <laughs> this is about my marriage. Mm. Oh my gosh. And so from there you know we took off with that and eventually uh, eventually I had to leave him and I didn't want to leave him. Because I was the only, I nobody in my family had ever been divorced that was not thinking that was not in my thinking when I was growing up or getting married or any choices. That direction wasn't in my thinking. Uh, but I finally had to say, look, if if you don't quit drinking, I'm gonna leave you. And I'm gonna take the kids and we're gonna leave. So he did quit drinking, but he didn't he didn't get sober. You know what I'm saying? The difference? Mm-hmm. Uh, He was uh, like held it really tight. You know, I I would see him come home from work and he'd lay down on the bed and he'd hold his hands really tight in a fist. And it was terrifying there because uh, we had obligations (laughs) and he was our breadwinner, you know. So all this was taking place. And finally, I had to find the courage uh, to leave. Mm -hmm. So um, and then from and from there, you know, I could. Divorce myself from him emotionally and physically and really focus on myself. You know, but it's a process. It's such a process. It's not an overnight. I mean, you might even realize that you can make choices that are different, but to implement those is a different story. You know, for me, it was anyway. It took me a lot of time and courage and support from from others in the program to you know, to really start my growth program. So I don't know if that answers any of your questions, but- Sure as hell does. That's, you know, that's was kind of how it started for me.
0: Yeah, I think that that's so true where first comes awareness, right? And then we kind of have to sit in awareness and then that becomes uncomfortable. And then we're finally able to, you know, take a change and take action. Christina, did you, could you at the time, I mean, obviously you were full-blown in your addiction, but did you, could you see- that your mom was changing? Well, like, Was that apparent to you at the time or just in hindsight?
1: Well, first I want to say, mom, I, I feel emotional. Like Every time I hear you talk, I just feel emotional. And I, I feel like every time I learn something new or maybe I just hear it different about your story and how it was for you. You know, maybe that's, I think that's really the gift of family recovery. It's just this continued growth and understanding, compassion and empathy. And As I get older, as I'm sober, longer, as I've raised my own children, right? Every, every major monumental phase in my life, I have a new respect and understanding for my mom, you know? So that makes me emotional. Like I just learned that my grandfather drank in the morning. I had no idea. Like that's a new piece of information, mom, that I, I did not know about my grandfather. So thanks for that. So anyway, uh, <laughs> um, your question, did I see my mom change? So I did. I did see my mom change. Um, so before I left the house permanently, yeah, which was young, of course, because I was addicted and I left home when I was 18 after, as you know, right, after many, 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 many stops. But what I started to see, uh, I remember when my mom my mom found Al-Anon. In fact, I say all the time that Al-Anon ruined my fucking life, right? Like <laughs> my mom found Al-Anon and my life was over as I knew it, right? She got this sponsor and she got a spine and things started to change in my world. Like this is what I saw, right? She just started setting boundaries, and holding boundaries, she started to say no. She started, and, and, and certainly with me, but I just ran over everything she said anyway. So it's not that my behavior necessarily changed, if that makes sense, but hers did. But I saw it with my dad. Like, she started to stand up to him. Like, I remember one time, never forget. It. So my parents were, like, super into having dinner every single night, the six of us. And my mom would make dinner seven nights a week, which I find so bizarre. Uh, I mean, I fed my kids seven nights a week, but, you know, maybe a burrito here mm-hmm. in the park, you know, macaroni and cheese made at home, but nonetheless. So I remember one time, I'll never forget it, um, when she started to change and we were eating dinner. And this was like a big event in my house. You have to understand, like, come hell or high water, you were home for dinner, right? It wasn't like an option. And my dad sat at the head of the table, and he kind of owned that table. And we were all really scared of my dad. But this one night during dinner, and I don't even know what happened between my mom and him, or maybe it was me and you, mom. But my mom stood up in the middle of dinner and walked out the door. And I just remember all of us were like, what? And like my dad didn't know what to do, and none of us kids knew what to do. And when I say she walked out the door, I mean she literally stood up and walked out the door. And that's my mom started walking at that time. Like, I know that sounds strange, but literally walking. Um, and she will tell you that walking saved her life, right? And she would walk in one direction tell God all her problems, walk back and tell God all the things she was grateful for. So she literally stood up from the dinner table, walked out of the house and just took a walk or wherever she went. But what I was left with was this. It was so profound for me to see her change and then um, to listen to her and set boundaries and hold boundaries. And of course, the most monumental boundary in my life was at the age of 18, when my mom closed the door on me and said, you're not welcome in my home or in my life until you're living a life of recovery. And if I never see you alive again, I want you to know how much I love you. Right. And she closed the door on me. So that was, of course, profound, but I'll tell you the greatest gift of her recovery is this when it took me to the age of 21 to find my way to treatment. So 18 to 21, right? And I was homeless and I did all the things which you can read in the last years. But when I hit bottom in that homeless shelter and I was really standing on the edge of my end, I called my mom for help. I didn't call my dad or you know, anyone else. I called my mom for help because I trusted her not to save me. I knew that I couldn't be saved and that on some level I had to fight my way out of this for it to mean anything to me. Again, I couldn't articulate it at the time, but I trusted her not to save me. Mm. I needed to hurt. I needed to hurt in order to change. And I didn't want to be saved. I just needed the way out to be illuminated. And that's what my mom gave me that night that I called. And she said, are you calling for help? I said, I am. And she said, this is where you can go. Here's the number of the place, right? Good luck. Hope you find your way. And hung up the phone, right? So that was that was one of the greatest gifts of her program, that Al-Anon taught her how to love me enough to stay out of the way.
2: We had tried everything we knew, everything you can list mm-hmm. um, for a parent to try to manage your child. We had done it, and it never worked. <laughs> it might work for a week or two weeks, but it wouldn't work constantly. And I just kept thinking, you know, I had to let her. I had to let her figure it out herself. I finally realized, oh my God, when she left, la- she ran from that last treatment center. I said, Oh, I, I'm not in charge here. There, I mean, I finally accepted totally from a guttural. Inside, you know, hit the bottom feeling, I I accepted that I had no power over my child. So, of course, when she came to the door, I mean, I, I just said, well, you're going to have to make your way because I, you know, if I could fix it, I would fix it. But it wasn't going to be fixed. And I and I realized that. And I when I turned after I said that you've got to go and make your way. You can't come home because she'd come home for two weeks and then it'd be back to the old deal again. So, um, so I said that, and I close the door and I turn around and here's my husband sitting at the table with his mouth hanging open. He could not believe that I had done that. He just could not, nor could I actually, but it was just at that point, it was, it was the natural thing for me to do. It was a natural progression of things, you know, because, you just try it and you try it and you try it again. And then you learn over time that it doesn't work and something else has got to happen. And so that's how it came to be. And, um, and so I, I'm grateful. I I thought she'd come home after a couple of weeks or something, but she didn't. And so, you know, she would call from wherever she'd be wanting to come home. And I'd say, well, are you ready for treatment? And she would be really angry. She might even hang up on me. And I just always ask her the same question. Are you ready for treatment? And um, she never <laughs> said yes. So I got, okay, that's fine. We have to make a life without her. You know, and we can continue. I went to my meetings, you know, I I, I had my sponsor. We walked once a week. I did a lot of walking, like Christina says, I'd leave the house and I'd talk, oh, constantly about, about my problems. And then I, I'd turn around and come back. By the time I got home, I'd fixed them all. Say, okay, well, that happened, but this is the good part, you know. So I'd put myself back together and get, get home. And that's how uh, we survived that period of time. And um, so I'm forever grateful that she found sobriety. And she found it on her own, you know, and accepted it. And she, it's deep within her. And I really so appreciate and respect Christina's sobriety. It's amazing to me. It's very powerful to see.
0: But for those three, so you left your husband during those three years, right? Wasn't, wasn't it that during 18 to 21? Yeah. Yes. I left eventually.
2: And um, some interesting things. So I decided, I told him one day. That I was gonna, I was thinking about leaving. I needed a, a break from the marriage, and then I, I told him the next day, you know, I'm I'm really thinking about this. So it took me about three days to say I'm going to leave the marriage. So he says, well, okay, then you just get the kids together and you tell them all together. You so he's going to punish me in some way that I'm going to have to say that. So I, <laughs> so we 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 called this family meeting and actually we got Christy Christina to come to this meeting. And so we're all sitting there and I'm sitting on the floor, which is so indicative of how it used to be that he's up here in the chair and I'm, I'm on the floor, you know, but I said, okay, when they were all there, I said, okay, I I need a break from this marriage. And so we're going to have this break. So my middle daughter gets up out of the chair and she comes and she sits on one side. I mean, she says, I need a break too. (laughs) <laughs> and then the youngest one comes and sits on the other side of me and says, I need a break, too. So here's the three of us. And then Christina is crying. Oh, my God, she's crying. I've never seen anything so agonizing in my life. And she said, oh, it was too late for her. You know, that's really been a sad thing in my in my. Recovery is I'm getting older. I'm remembering things like I don't hope I'm not getting Alzheimer's, but I'm remembering things and that I that are very deeply buried, you know, and that's one of the things I remember. And so I'm, I'm I understand a lot more why she was running from all these treatment centers, because it really wasn't fair for me to put her in this position to be the one to say what's going on in our family that wasn't fair it was my job you know but I couldn't see it that way it was too confusing and and I had had this vision of us this family that was going to be like what it, or what I had when growing up myself which was a lovely little family you know and um, that's what I was wanting for us but Alcoholism makes it very difficult to have that loving family that you want to have because that disease is very destructive for the person suffering and for the family and the people that love them and watch them and are terrified of things that happen and you know react in, in ways that might not be helpful. So I remember when I left, when, when I called the moving company, Several days, canceled, called them again. I mean, it was a real process. And um, so then they came and I called my neighbors to come and help me. I told the kids to go get the Christmas decorations. <laughs> and I went through the house and I said, take what you like and leave the rest. So that little little slogan from Al-Anon just kept ringing in my head. I just like take what you like and leave the rest. So I didn't need all this baggage, you know. I took what was important for us to manage as a family without living all together. But I've always been grateful for that. And I always thought, well, I can I can replace these things. It's just things. I can, you know, what's important, I, I can replace. But I love that. al really helped me to move on.
0: Now, Christina, were there any... Um significant like faulty beliefs or faulty programming from that was ingrained during your childhood that surfaced in your sobriety anything significant that you can think of
1: yeah i mean could you give me an example of that
0: belief that were unlovable or that were inherently flawed or just something that as you were sober something that was continuing to cause you pain in sobriety and you realized that it was unfinished business from childhood
1: yeah well sure you know, I think I struggled so much in my early sobriety with feeling, you know, I knew that I was loved and wanted all the days of my life. You know, I definitely knew I was loved and wanted, but I felt very broken from the time I can remembering, you know, who, who I was. I felt very broken and um, disjointed, kind of shattered to pieces on the inside. You know, held only to, you know, held only together by my skin, right? And that's what I loved about substances is it seemed to kind of glue all those pieces together. And so, you know, in my re- early recovery, I would say that the not just in my early recovery, all of my recovery has been about learning to love myself, be at peace with myself, find my voice and my strength, and I don't know, just really love who I am, and I. You know, I am definitely in that place, right? I love who I am. I love my life. I love my struggles and my fight. But, you know, all of it. I, so, yes, I think my early sobriety was filled with that. It was quite the journey. And I, I told you at five years sober. So I got sober. And then I feel like I did more in five years than, I don't know, most people do in a decade for sure. And I did more in a decade than most people do in twenty. Right. Like started a business and wrote a book and, you know, educated myself and, you know, got married, had children. Right. I did so, so much. And I hit a huge emotional bottom. The first one in my sobriety and the bottom was, you know, that I stood at this place in my life that I never thought I'd be. And I worked so hard, like all those things I did, it was like this, this massive game of catch up, right? Like I wanted to catch up and, and make up for all the things that I didn't do. I, I wanted to do all the things that I didn't do. I wanted to make my mom proud. I, I wanted to get somewhere. I wanted to be somebody. I just, I wanted to do all these things that I didn't do when I was busy being addicted. And I realized when I got to the place that I did all these things, but I felt worse at that point than I had in all my sobriety. It was weird and really, really painful. And I felt very lost. And it's very painful to be, say, five years sober, right? At the, you know, in the middle of this amazing career that I had created, you know, marriage. I mean, all these things I thought were the things I was supposed to have or get back or get. And I felt worse and more lost than ever. It's very painful to be sober and feel so broken, right? It's like when you're a newcomer, you know, in your first year of sobriety, feeling broken is standard, right? And people stand and cheer and clap because you get up every day and brush your teeth. Right. And then it's like, here I am a five, five years sober. and No one's clapping because I brush my teeth anymore. Right. And somehow I'm supposed to have the answers. I have my life together in a way that I didn't think possible, nor did anyone else think possible. And I ended up feeling worse than ever. And what I realized was I was empty. It was hollow on the inside. And, um, What I had on the outside just didn't matter. And I do believe, to be frank with you, that my emotional recovery began at five years sober. Which is interesting, by the way, because a great mentor of mine, Stephanie Brown, Dr. Stephanie Brown, she talks about early recovery being the first five years. And I remember when I first heard that, and I actually was quite offended. Like, fuck you. Fuck you. I'm not in recovery, right? Like, I got three years sober. Like, I'm killing it like, I know my shit lady. <laughs> and then I hit five years sobriety and I felt like as if she mapped it out. Right. And I just fell apart. So I, I don't know, maybe that was a really long answer to your question, but I do believe my emotional sobriety began there. And I, I believe that was the journey of healing the inner child, right. Really reckoning with who I was on the inside and coming to terms with, you know, those harder, deeper, more significant childhood issues and all those things. So, and the other spiritual bottom I have is at 18 years sober, again, very, very painful to be 18 years sober, supposed to have all these answers, right? Have a television show or two or five, literally be at the top of your career, making more money than ever, right? Kids, the whole thing and feeling more lost than I ever had in, in my life, really ever, ever before in all my life. And I don't know if people talk about those
0: things enough. So what would be, I mean, you kind of just talked about some stuff that I think you probably would include in the sequel, but what, would what, what would be something as far as, I guess, you know, the family recovery aspect, like what would be something significant that you guys would want to touch upon? Or is there, have there been any significant realizations since you've written the book?
2: Mom, do you i to go- well, I'd like to. T- I'd like to say how, I don't know how this has happened, but we have a very close family now. I, I think, you know, and I mean, everybody's busy doing their lives, but we support each other um, like sporting events for the grandkids, for my grandkids, you know, families back and forth carpooling and we have family dinners we before uh, the pandemic we had family dinners uh, maybe five or six times a year to celebrate birthdays and um, I think everybody looked forward to coming to the family dinners and I would enjoy standing back in the kitchen and watching my children. Um, just come and yak it up with each other and the kids were happy and I don't know how it happened. I, I think I think my parents, my children's grandparents on my side, they were very into family as well. And so that's how I you know experienced family and I'm, I was wanting that for my own family. and I think we have it. Uh, how much of that is sobriety driven I don't know, but really we don't we do have alcohol in our homes sometimes you know but it's not the focus of our family dinners and sometimes nobody has anything to drink. sometimes I'm the only one that has a glass of wine and everybody else nobody else does. I mean it's lovely it's lovely to have that and and not feel, you know, I know families get together and they drink a lot and we just don't. So I'm really, really grateful for all that we've we've accomplished as a family unit. Just the mere fact that we support each other and enjoy each other's company the children as well. So as after um, addiction, I, I'm just grateful for how it's turned out. <laughs> Because it could have gone another another way as well. Uh, I don't know what Christina has to say about that, but but I'm really grateful that we we can all be enjoying each other at this point.
1: You know, I think in the sequel, um, I guess I would talk about obviously the continued health and connection but i I think if I were to try and summarize the course of my life in the last two and a half decades is how our lives and how our family, our relationships, <laughs> right? Like it's gonna make me emotional, but like how I've raised my children, how I live my life, how I run my business, how I interact with, you know, my clients, my friends, you know, is all a byproduct of family recovery. Mm-hmm. Right. And every major event that we've had as a family since the last years. Right. So burying my father, which, as you might imagine, for so many reasons, was such an extraordinary process of him, you know, making peace with him and then helping him die. Essentially, I helped my father die and held his hand while he took his last breath. Right, Raising my children, giving birth to two children. And the, the, like I said, the deeper understanding I have for my mom, God, and like the profound respect I have for her, you know, now that I have raised two children, well, they're 18 and 21, like the profound respect I have for her that she stood at that door and closed the door on me, right? Like, I guess what I'm saying is I, I think That everything we are, the whole way we operate, from all those challenging issues, right? And then finding my husband dead, right? I mean, he died by suicide. So what that did to me, what that did to my children, what that did to my family, how we all came together, how we fought our way out of that is all defined and structured by the principles of family recovery, Right. I mean, Al-Anon and Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, if we were just to forego anonymity, uh, has truly shaped my whole life. I look at my children and I see, I mean, they are a reflection of the principles that my mom set into motion 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, like, with the last years, my mom and I traveled all over the country. Like, we've been everywhere. (laughs) Like, places you don't even know are like a place. (laughs) (laughs) Right? With this little book that we wrote, right? Like, two no-name people in some random little place wrote this book and somehow launched into this amazing career. But my point is, for a decade, I learned more about my mom in the most incredible ways, unexpected ways on that journey than I ever would have expected. Probably one of the, the greatest gifts of the book actually is nothing to do with the book and
2: everything to do with the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And the trips the trips we've made I mean when you when you take a, a a trip with your child you, you know you get to have them to yourself more or less I mean you don't share with their family you're together and uh and we had some nice conversations and experiences oh, it was fun yeah we've we've had a really good time together and I told her when i said now Christina when you're 70. I want you to think about your mother. I'm running through the airport, pulling my suitcase, <laughs> trying to keep up with my daughter. I mean, it's quite something. <laughs> I said, well, maybe it's good for my, um, my my well-being that I have to keep up with her because, you know, we'd have these short stops in between. And we had to switch planes or whatever, change Change. Um, uh, it, it just it, it was quite something. I mean, really, I feel real privileged to have that experience and also to see firsthand how people respond to her story, which is quite powerful, you know, and we speak to groups that are not in recovery And um, so these, a lot of these groups are people who have children and they're anxious not to have the same issue that we have, you know, had. (laughs) So, uh, so they want to know what magic potion do we have that's going to help us not have problems with our children drinking and using alcohol and drugs and so on. And of course, we, we really don't have, we can only share our experience we don't have a you know a, we don't have a a trick up our sleeves or or anything. We just have to share our experience and hope that they take something from that. But it's been it's been a joyful journey really, really and truly, going from all the terrible things we experienced to now having this joy and this shared experience, uh, it's it's really grand. I love it.
0: What was uh, what sort of impact did the book have on your siblings, Christina?
1: Good question. Um, They were really supportive of the book from the start. You know, we sat down in the beginning because I felt really strongly that, uh, you know, it's their story too, right? It's their story that we're about to put on a national stage. So we did all sit around and talk about it. I think it was insightful and educational for all of them. It brought us all together. It started some provocative conversations for sure. But in all, they were really supportive. And I think they continued to be supportive over the years and really kind of sat back in real amazement and celebration of mom and me and watching us travel and do this together and speaking engagements and book signings. And I don't know, it turned out to be a real family family just kind of change, you know, affected and encouraged, uplifted, I don't know, challenged, you know, all of us, it's been great. And I don't know, you know, it's great, right. To see my brother, I mean, like at our hometown book signings, right. They're all there in the front row, just without hesitation, you know, without hesitation or question you know undeniably supportive even though it was vulnerable for them right like it's not easy to have your darkest days your family secrets right out there for the whole world to see or to read and have no control over what they think of it or what they do with your words you know it's a very vulnerable feeling for them too
0: right oh yeah Mm -hmm. Was your right off the bat, was your plan always to write this book where it was both you and your mom, or did you initially set out to write it yourself? And then how did that process work to where you guys came together?
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, from the time I got sober, I mean, I knew I've always liked to write, right. But, uh, um, I knew I wanted to write a book. It was kind of always in my head and people would tell mom and I all the time, you know, you guys should write a book, but eventually it was like the wisp. To a scream, right? Like it was always in my mind. And then it just got louder and louder until one day I sat down to just write the book. And I do believe I wrote the original manuscript in about 90 days. Wow. But what kept coming to me when I sat down to write the book, right? And the first few pages of the book have been left untouched, like no editing. So that's just how it started. And so as I was writing the story or the experience of hitting bottom, which is how the book starts. It just kept coming to my mind. I got to get my mom. Like, this isn't the whole story. This isn't the whole story. I don't, I, I just, so it wasn't necessarily a decision to write a book with my mom. It was more of a calling, mm-hmm. like a direction that I was pulled into because I started to write an addiction memoir. And I was sitting there writing this memoir thinking, This means nothing without my mom. Like my mom is, she is the hero of this story, frankly, right? And I kept thinking like every major point in my addiction, my mom was there. So how do I write this story and not have my mom's story involved? So that's kind of how it came about in that original manuscript. I would call my mom and interview her basically like, whatever. And I got it totally wrong and whatever. So when, when the manuscript got picked up by a literary agent, she basically said, your mom's got to tell her story. So although I wrote the original manuscript in about 90 days, uh, the actual writing of the last years and what you read today took, took about a year with my mom.
0: And what was that process like for you, Connie?
2: Well, it was it was interesting. I thought, yes, let's write a book. And so she went off and did it. (laughs) But uh, and that was terrifying. It is. It's very terrifying. I didn't know what was going to. I said, well, how am I going to show up in this book? I better (laughs) better get involved because who knows what she's going to say. And the truth of the matter is, yeah. She needed, she needed my input, (laughs) but uh, it was, it was terrifying. And uh, it was like doing a four step, you know, with your child. I mean, it was very interesting and she would call me up at night and, We'd we'd, uh, you know, she's fast on the computer. So she'd be typing and typing and I'd be saying things. And she'd, I'd say, well, don't write that. Don't put that in the book. She'd, oh, yeah, that's good. We're going <laughs> to leave that. Come on, Christina, take that. No, no, that's good. We're going to leave. It. <laughs> so so uh, anyway, it was quite something. You know, the last, I mean, we, we had editors. We had two editors. And, and along the way, we edited as well. And so I said at the end, you know, Christina, let's let's do this. You read your part and I'm going to read my part and let's see if they stand alone. And I believe they do. And at the end of that exercise I said, you know, this is a pretty good book. I think somebody's going to want to read it. And sure enough, <laughs> we we got a publisher and and you know, it And somebody wanted to read, a lot of people wanted to read it and they pass it on. You know, it's not, it's, it's a pass along book. So buy it if you want, but. But mostly buy it.
1: (laughs) Mostly buy it. (laughs) You know, I think probably twice, you know, there's probably twice as many people that read it, that bought it because like my mom said, it's a pass along book. You know what I mean? It's one of those books you read and you're like, oh my God, my sister has to read this. You Mm you know whatever so it's kind of a grassroots type of book but whatever so buying's preferred but reading
0: it's encouraged <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's
0: such a beautiful little story of just how uh, the ripple effect of when one when one family member seeks treatment and especially you didn't have the support of your husband. And I just think about how many people would have, you know, just given up and it's just the beautiful story of how the the impact that can happen when, when one family member seeks treatment. And obviously that's not the norm, right? I wish, I wish it always had that ripple effect. Unfortunately it does not. But um, when one family member seeks treatment, the rest of the family sure as hell has a much better chance than if they don't. Right. right. Yeah, I,
2: I can remember the first time we went to a, a treatment family uh, program and they talk about the mobile. And the mobile to me is such a visual uh, example of what happens in a family. I mean, you've got your mobile and you just move one piece. You take one piece away. You know, you change one piece and the whole thing shifts. Now, you might not like the way it shifts, you know, but it does shift. There's, There's no way that you can... Have one member change dramatically their feelings or their reactions or their boundaries and not have others react. It's a very it's very powerful, I think, as a family system. Just find one person. And unfortunately for yourself, maybe you're the one person. We don't know. You you don't have control. That's the thing about this disease. We don't have control. There's no pill that you can pop and, and feel better or ready for sobriety or something. So.
0: Yep. And remembering too, that like, even if it doesn't affect the, the current living family members, it has an, a huge impact on future generations, which is right, so important too. So
2: I think that's true because I feel like, uh, I know there are probably alcoholics on my side, but there's a very, very strong, long line of alcoholics on, on my husband's side, uh, being his mother, his father, his grandfather, his great grandfather. So it's a very ingrained family system that I married into. And the, and I think we changed that dynamic. I feel like we've changed that dyna- dynamic in our family. So, my mm-hmm. children don't have to pass that on and um, and their children don't either. So hopefully, uh, you know, there's no guarantees in life, but the more people you love, <laughs> the more risk you take. So we have to be willing to take the risk, you know, so just mm-hmm. remember that. And um, I, I hope I haven't seen any, you know, I have seven grandchildren so, I'm praying that they'll all manage their um use of alcohol or drugs if they if that were their choice or maybe they'll be sober, I don't know.
0: Any closing comments from you, Christina? Closing comments. I
1: I I mean, I don't know. I I
0: um I mean,
2: outside of just I don't know. I mean, maybe <laughs> Maybe she hasn't come. I've never seen her so at a loss for words, tell you the truth. <laughs> I mean, there's like so much that I, you know, I've been
1: sober almost 28 years. And I guess when I think about emotional sobriety, it's been such a cathartic journey. And I think, you know, when you're brave enough to live large enough and, um, you know, it's like chest forward and vulnerable and open to all of it right to all that life has to offer it's just the emotional sobriety is it it just gets deeper and it's definitely a journey and i don't know right like you never get to a place in sobriety where life like where where difficult things don't happen i've learned that you know that difficult things happen even many 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 years after right so I don't know what I'm saying. It's just been a great. My emotional sobriety's been been a journey, and and many ups and downs, and all the life experiences along the way. Like I said, like raising kids and burying my husband, and falling in love again. And, you know, growing older with my siblings and my mom, and I don't know. I
2: don't know what I'm saying. I just life is good as it as it should be. As you say, not without problems and issues that come about, but somehow the tools are there now to manage what comes our way. So.
0: Well, this has been amazing. Where can people find you if you want to be found, either one of you? <laughs> yeah, so
1: um, let's see. My Instagram is at Christina Wanzelak. My website is Full Circle Intervention. And you can always Google the lost years, surviving a mother and daughter's worst nightmare. That'll certainly take you to Amazon. It's I'll put it in the show notes so people can find it. Great, and it's you know uh, on Audible or whatever. You know Mm
2: -hmm.
0: you can
1: listen to
2: it or read it. I think isn't there that lost years? Do we have that website still?
1: Yeah, but it scares me because I don't really know if it
2: works or not. Well, I think recently we got something. Uh, somebody. But,
1: but but I have it on my full circle intervention.
2: Yeah. So and for me, you you'd get me through Christina. She's the. That's how I got you today. So
1: <laughs> I'm my <on> mom's <Monty. laughs> So
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of uh, you know I'm retired, <laughs> doing other stuff.
0: Yeah. Living your life. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much. I know that you gave so much hope and inspiration to so many people. So I just feel so grateful and just the the love between you two and everything that you've been through. Um it's just it's just really amazing to see and makes me emotional as well. And this is my first time really talking to either one of you. So thank you so much. I really, really, really really appreciate it. It Thank you for having us. Yes,
1: that's great. Mm -hmm.
0: Bye
2: mama. Bye, Dom.
1: I well
0: that wraps up today's episode. I hope you heard something that can help you on your own healing journey. Thanks again to Christina and Connie for sharing so openly and honestly. You can find links to their book in the show notes, as well as a bunch of other resources and links to all my social media accounts. You can find me on Instagram and TikTok at Pod. And please, if you haven't already done so, if you could please, please, please give me a five-star rating on Apple Podcast, I would be so grateful and it will help me to reach more adult children. And now it is time for Hit a Girl Up. up, up, So I received this message from Charlotte. Hey, Andrea, big fan of the podcast. I'm currently on my healing journey and I'm struggling. I'm 23 and still living at home with my abuser, I had an awakening about a year ago, and to say it was horrific would be an understatement. For years, I was dealing with extreme love addiction, codependency, and binge-eating behavior. I have extreme love and compassion for my mother, who is my abuser, but I also have rage, anger, and hate. Very early into my healing journey, I snapped and told her that she was a narcissist, a pathological liar, and an abuser, and that I would have to spend my lifetime healing from having her as a mother." Although this came from a place of pure anger and rage, I feel extreme guilt and shame every day. I think she has come to the realization that her gig is up and she is now binge drinking and self-destructing and I feel very responsible for this. I'm still very codependent and I feel like she's running my whole life. I can't seem to detach myself from her and feel so responsible for her well-being. I can't seem to escape from the extreme anger to extreme compassion." I always thought that I was doing well and in the clear because I never picked up alcohol or another substance abuse issue. But like you said, the codependency and love addiction is just as serious. Your podcast gives me hope and I'm happy to be on this journey early and that I have resources like this. I relate to you when you say you don't want to blame your parents because they were just doing the best that they could at the time. But since awakening and healing, the anger and shame has really taken over my mind and clouded my vision. I also regularly think to myself that maybe I'm making all this up and my mom is really the victim. It's excruciating and so confusing, but your podcast is helping me. Thanks, Charlotte. Charlotte, thank you so damn much for your message. You are so insightful and it is truly a fucking miracle and a blessing that you are starting your journey at 23. And let me say, no, you are not making all of this up. And it sounds like you are exactly where you're supposed to be, feeling all of these feelings and emotions that you have avoided feeling your whole life. You know, I read that quote last week from the ACUA trauma syndrome. Change comes when we have sat in the pain long enough and fully enough so that we can feel it, we can open our mouths and talk about it, see it for what it is, reorder and understand it, and then walk out of it. And this whole thing about not blaming our parents, that does not mean that we give our parents a free pass, and it sure as hell does not mean that we don't feel anger or hurt towards our parents for what we were subjected to. But the reason that we don't stay in a place of blame is because when we stay in a place of blame, that blocks us from healing. But it sounds like you are exactly where you are supposed to be. Of course, it's confusing. Of course, it's painful. But you just need to trust that if you stay with this, you are going to make Make it to the other side. And you're going to be able to share your story and help so many other people that are in the same exact shoes that you are now. So again, thank you so much for your message. If you have comments, questions, insights, I would love to hear from you. Hit a girl up. Check out the show notes for ways to contact me. Next week, I will be back with another great episode for you. It's going to be super raw. It's going to be super vulnerable. And I'm super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a goodie. I promise.